everybody. Magnus here. Mmm, Christmas. I love Christmas. You might say that Uncle Magnus is sort of a Christmas junkie. You see, boys and girls, Christmas is a holiday for everyone. Christmas is the people's holiday. Now, a major part of Christmas prep relates to music. You need just the right mix to do the job right. You understand? Now, me, I'm a sucker for the classics. Christmas carols are fine in their place, I suppose, but hardcore Christmas junkies like me need a little more than that. So, stuff like Handel's Messiah, Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker, the Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, and that type of thing is a little bit more in line with my sensibilities. And yes, it would be safe to say that I long ago loaded a shit ton of Christmas music into iTunes. Because, yes, I've been prepping for it because that stuff had to be ready to go for the day after Halloween. Now, I should add here that the Mighty Magnus calendar of Mega Magnificence has only 11 months to it. My month of December is actually 61 days long and, in fact, begins the day after Halloween. It consists of 31 December the 1st, after which the numbering gets back in sync with all y'all's lame-ass calendar of lackluster lameness. You see? So, here we are. And, as I say, a major part of a proper observance of Christmas requires just the right mix of music, all right? So, no jingle bells or winter wonderland fucking bullshit allowed around here. And so now, you're all on notice. I've been planning and plotting and scheming and devising the Mary Magnus Mega Mix of Masterpieces for this Christmas. And now you know. And for those of you who might have otherwise been interested, you need to understand that Dave Atterbury has already reported in to be my Christmas lieutenant. So I'm sorry to all of the other applicants, but guys, he was the firstest with the mostest. So congratulations, Christmas Lieutenant Atterbury. And now enjoy the rest of the episode. I've studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. The words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil, he's a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic. 
And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are a last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football year-round, nobody cares. Basketball year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me they make comic books here. Oh, that's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and right now, it's all about image. You see, for quite a while now, I've been working my way through a bunch of different five or six or God knows longer, or even shorter in some cases, episode mini-series or mega-series or what have you, where I talk about a particular topic or theme or idea. And right now, the theme that I'm running with is Image Comics. Now, the reason this is kind of important to clarify on is because when I started thinking about it, the premise of this mega-series can be perhaps a little misleading. So allow me to say right now that I understand that most of you understand that Image Comics seems to more or less have lived up to its full potential, you know? What with titles like The Walking Dead and God knows a bunch of other ones, you know, Morning Glories and stuff like that. Most people understand that, you know, the potential that Image Comics always had has finally been delivered upon, right? But it's not that I disagree with that. It's more that I think that the... How shall I put this? I think they've had potential, literally, from day one. And what I want to do in this mega series is talk about image comics that I've always had, I shouldn't say an appreciation for, but I've always thought had either a lot going for them as it is, or else they had a lot of potential, irrespective of the actual execution of those uh, of those titles, right? So some of the stuff I'm going to be talking about, maybe this isn't necessarily the greatest comic book that's ever been created, but at least in its original conception, this had a lot of potential to it, you know? Now maybe, the, like I say, maybe the execution wasn't necessarily there, but the potential most certainly was. That's going to be some of the comics that I'm talking about. Others of the image comics that I'm going to be talking about they pretty much did everything that they were capable of doing. They met their full potential right from the start. And there's really no equivocation about that. You know? So it could very well be that that's what's going to happen. So it really just depends on, you know, the story that I... Or the comics that I'm going to be talking about. That pretty much is going to dictate 
I guess, what happens next, you know? Hopefully that adds up. So anyway, now as it goes for for today, uh, what I'm going to be doing is talking about Astro City. And when I say Astro City, what I mean by that is the original six-issue miniseries that debuted in 1995. Uh, and it's really, if we want to get down to brass tacks, this is actually called Kurt Busiek's Astro City. At least the first issue is. And the shtick of it is actually quite simple. Basically, Astro City, as will become evident or more evident as we move along, Astro City is sort of a pastiche of, I guess, the sort of the most iconic, if not necessarily the most iconic characters in the DC universe, the most iconic tropes of the DC universe. And to a lesser degree, I think you can probably toss Marvel into that as well, in the miniseries at least. Um, you can somewhat include Marvel in that. But mostly what Astro City has always been, to me, is sort of a valentine, mostly to DC Comics, you know? And what I mean by that is sort of DC Comics at their very best, you know? When DC Comics is firing on all cylinders, from a creative standpoint, this is what it can be, you know? And at the time that Astro City came out, for as good as the D as the then modern DC universe was in 1995, I think it would be fair to say that they'd kind of moved away, had long uh, by that point long ago moved away from sort of their franchise, you know, sort of their their bread and butter. And I guess in Kurt Busiek's imagination, that sort of left a it sort of left a hole in the marketplace that perhaps. Astro City could fill nicely. And so, here we are. Astro City. And like I say, this is the six-issue miniseries. Now, the reason I'm trying to emphasize that is, is by, you know, simply by saying Astro City, that is a little bit of a dicey proposition because that, kind of like Sin City, that can mean, or at least it can encompass so many things. Whereas if you say the original six-issue miniseries from 1995, suddenly the meaning of Astro City becomes very clear. And so hopefully that all makes, makes a little bit more sense. So, But I guess to, to get into it right now, this is Astro City number one. Writer is Kurt Busiek. Penciler is Brent Anderson. Inker is Brent Anderson. Color is Steve Butchelato and Electric uh, Crayon. Letterer is Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Summary is as follows. Just like always, the Samaritan dreams of flying. But not just flying. We're talking about flying with reckless abandon. He swoops carelessly through the clouds with gratitude for his lack of responsibility. But he's abruptly shaken out of his dreams by the emergency alert notifications. A gigantic tsunami is about to destroy Manila, Philippines. The Samaritan quickly puts on his suit and cape, swoops out the window, and arrives in Manila in 6.2 seconds. He quickly dispels the tsunami while making mental notes to repair some of the damage caused by the shockwave of the gigantic body of water's impact before he zips off to Turkey to take out some terrorists and then heads over 
to Stuttgart to repair a coronal rift. Four hours later, he barely makes it back to his office in his secret identity of Asia Martin, where he works as a fact checker, and then he quickly sets up his alert notification device, which he calls a Zixometer, to do his work for him. After that, he puts his Samaritan outfit back on, swoops out his office window, and zips around the world dealing with all different kinds of catastrophes and emergencies. The Zixometer in his office ranks all of the emergencies according to priority. Hours later, Samaritan swoops back to his office and switches back to his secret identity of Asia Martin to shuffle papers around his office, add handwritten notes to his files, and basically create, just make, make an appearance uh, with, his, with his co-workers as everybody's heading out for lunch, and he's doing this in order to perpetuate the illusion that he's been in the office all day long. After that, he switches back to his Samaritan uniform and hauls balls out to the Midwest in 2.7 seconds for a meeting at the airborne headquarters of the Honor Guard, which is a team featuring several of the most powerful superheroes in the world. After the meeting, the Honor Guard uh, members hang around, talking shop, and making improvements to their equipment. Their alien lifeform detector is malfunctioning, which is a passing line of internal monologue here, but is actually like a really fucking important thing to remember for future Astro City issues. Suddenly, an emergency alert notification comes in. A bank robbery is in progress at Astro Bank City Center branch, so the entire honor guard mobilizes and then takes out the menagerie gang, which is to say the perps robbing the bank. The robbers are no sooner in custody than Samaritan swoops back to his office, switches back to Asia Martin, and finds his boss beating down his door, demanding to know just where the fuck he is. He hands her some, some of his work, gets bitched out for locking his door again, for which he makes an excuse, and then he gets handed more work, so he locks the door again, muses over the friends, family, and love that he's sacrificing, receives another emergency alert notification, and swoops out the window again. He foils a jailbreak on Bureau Island, which is the Astro City equivalent of Alcatraz. He helps raise a sunken ship from the 17th century to the surface. He rescues a cat from a tree. He rescues a man from a collapsing building. And as he does so, he muses to himself that even though he's saving lives here, people are dying all over the world and he can't do anything about it because he can only be in one place at a time. At dinner time, later that night, he attends an Astro City Firefighters Association gala where he's presented with an award, which he later deposits into the closet, which is what he calls this sort of alternative dimension, which only he has access to, and where he keeps all the awards and tokens the Samaritan has been awarded. He no sooner exits the closet and returns to this dimension, then he gets attacked by the living nightmare, which is to say, a monster created by a psychologist who attempted to eliminate fear from the human race, but in fact only succeeded in externalizing it and giving it a physical being. The Samaritan gets the crap beaten out of him by the living nightmare until he finds the angle that he's looking for, after which he zips the living nightmare into space and hurls him into the sun. Which doesn't really matter very much because the living nightmare phases out of existence once it's been moved far enough away from anything, and I should say anyone, from which it can draw the power of emotion from. 
After dispensing with the living nightmare and repairing all the property damage, Samaritan flies back to his apartment. He's bruised, battered, and utterly exhausted. It's one o'clock in the morning and Samaritan is already asleep as he collapses into his bed. And there he dreams of flying happily and recklessly through the clouds and through the sunlight, without a care in the world. The end. So, what did I think? Well, as I say, it's pretty self-evident that this is, like I say, Astro City is a pastiche of the DC Comics universe. And it seems to me self-evident that specifically the Samaritan is kind of a pastiche or maybe not a pastiche, but he's sort of a Superman archetype. Does that make sense? Superman at his, at his most iconic, at his most archetypal, at his most pure, you know? And this, I think it could be fairly well argued that this is perhaps the way that Kurt Busiek sees Superman, or at least the way he saw Superman circa 1995, you know? And this is a guy who's got the same approximate power set as Superman, but this is a guy who's 100% dedicated to the mission, you know? Whereas Superman uses his identity of Clark Kent, whether you view Clark Kent as the real person or if you view Clark Kent as more of a as a front end for Superman to interface with the with the rest of mankind, Clark Kent nevertheless always attempts to maintain relationships of some kind, you know, and the Samaritan really doesn't. He's entirely 100% committed to his mission, you know? And basically, it's not exactly a perfect analog of Superman, is what I'm saying, you know? Or if he is, this is basically Kurt Busiek's view of Superman, you know? And when you think about it, a guy that has all of this power and takes his mission this seriously, this is probably exactly what he dreams of, flying. But flying carelessly, you know, flying with irresponsibility. Basically, he can fly and he doesn't have to do something or save somebody or accomplish some objective or or complete some task or something like that. He can just fly, you know? It's not a means to an end. Flying is now the end. It's what he wants to be doing, you know? And just basically be irresponsible. He doesn't have to be this superhero. He can just have fun with his powers, you know? And yes, he gets to use his powers probably to their full extent every single day. He just doesn't get to do so for fun and games. Because when you think about it, I mean, you know, you guys listening to this and probably me as well, if we had this guy's powers, yeah, we'd probably use the full extent of them every day. But probably I would think for pleasure, not necessarily to help people, you know? And... That, to me, is such an insightful character moment, you know, for this guy, you know. This is what he dreams of doing. On the surface, it appears to be exactly what he's already doing. It's just not. And that, I think, is why 
I'm going to try to keep this kind of PG rated, but that's why Samaritan has to be naked when he dreams of flying through the clouds, you know? He's, it, what matters is he's not wearing his Samaritan outfit, you know? And there's a sort of, I guess if you really want to get, you know, highfalutin psychological with it, you could kind of view this as being sort of like, for him, this has got to be sort of like skinny dipping, where I think, you know, look, we've all been swimming before, but if you've ever been skinny dipping, you know that there's a little bit of a different, shall we say, sensation associated with skinny dipping that you just don't get when you go swimming with a bathing suit, you know? And that, I think, is what we're really supposed to take from this, you know, the the carelessness of it, you know? So, anyway, I'm, basically what I'm trying to do here is is find a way to phrase this in a way that I don't sound like a fucking pervert, you know, who goes skinny dipping and stuff all the time. So hopefully that all makes sense, and I'm just going to move right along and say that when he gets sort of violently awoken and dragged out of his dream, he... he He's got an emergency situation that he has to deal with, but he takes a minute to just sit in bed, and this is just amazing internal monologue here where he says, the alarm clock. No, not the alarm clock. It hasn't had a chance to ring in years. The emergency alert transmitter, as always. The light stabs at my eyes, and I feel heavy and old. But that can't matter. And he's just sitting, and what we see is a sort of a silhouette of the Samaritan. He's just sitting in his bed. And this is a guy who's feeling the miles in the years. You know, he's been doing this for a long time. And he's just dealing with aches and pains. He wakes up in a certain amount of pain every single morning because of the toll that his work takes on him, you know? And the other thing is, you know, as you look around his apartment right here on, uh, in the third panel, and I'd love to tell you the page number, but unfortunately I can't because they don't number the fucking page numbers here. But anyway, um, or they don't number the pages, I should say. Um, <clears throat> but this is basically the page where he uh, turns off the emergency alert transmitter and he just takes a minute to just sit in bed. As you look around his apartment, what you see is that He's got kind of, I guess, like college furniture. I mean, this is a guy that I think we're supposed to assume is somewhere in his early to mid-30s, somewhere around there, perhaps. And <clears throat> he doesn't have, you know, fancy schmancy, you know, furniture and decor and all that stuff. His bookcase is basically wooden planks and cinder blocks. His mattress it's basically just a mattress that's supported by cinder blocks. He's got this really cheap-looking end table, and there, he's just got a very college-looking... It's it's very dorm-like, you know? Very cheap, very... I shouldn't say ghetto, but it's just... This isn't exactly, you know, a fancy apartment that he lives in by any stretch, you know? And then when he gets out of bed and we see him, you know, wandering around, you know, his apartment and, you know, gathering up his Samaritan uniform and his grippies... You know, we see that the, you know, what little decor he does have. It's, it's basically stuff like, these are, it's mostly like pro, uh, promotional giveaways. I mean, these are things that he got for free somewhere. And so he thought they looked good and he put them up in his apartment. But it's not like, you know, he bought a, a print of 
you know, famous, uh, you know, famous art, or he bought actual paintings and had those hanging up in his office or pictures or anything like that. This is, you know, very cheap and, and let's face it, just free, you know, decorations that he has, you know, up in, in, you know, his apartment. And again, you know, in the same panel where we see him wandering around in his grippies, we again see this, you know, just cheap ass bookcase. that's made of planks and cinder blocks. And he's got books and stuff in there, but it's all very arranged, very haphazardly. And, you know, it's this basically what I'm saying is that this is a guy who lives a very I mean, this is a very poverty like existence that he lives. I mean, he's not living high on the hog at all, you know, and but even before, you know, getting into that, there's just this moment. Uh, again, and it's all on this one page. I don't know the number, but it's the, the page where he opens up that little panel in the wall. And there's his Samaritan uniform. The panel before that, he's just sitting in bed. And you can't even see his eyes, but you can see his face. And he just looks exhausted, you know. And I don't know why, but that's something that I kind of like the idea of. You know, somebody who's this committed to his mission... I mean, Superman, I've always assumed because of the fact that he's got, he's invulnerable. He's got basically a certain kind of immunity to, you know, achy muscles and, you know, just kind of that soreness that you get sometimes just in your bones when you really work hard. He's kind of immune to that, you know, but I really like the idea of a, of a Superman who exerts himself so fucking much that even he's waking up in the morning and he's feeling it, you know? And again, this is just fucking incredible character, you know? Leave it to Kurt Busiek to, to, I don't know, catch the subtleties of stuff like this, you know? This was, you know, as, as, I think really right from the, from the very first page, you kind of knew that this was something that Kurt, Kurt Busiek, you know, had a lot of fun with. But as the series goes on, and I mean the miniseries itself goes on, what you see is that this is more than just kind of fun and games. This really was a labor of love for Kurt Busiek, you know? And it's this is just such amazing character up to this point, you know? And he hasn't, I mean, Samaritan, he's basically just dreamed and then he woke up. But to me, it's the sign of a master who can take even sort of, you know, boring and mundane stuff like that and wring so fucking much character from it, you know? It's just amazingly good writing. And honestly, for as good as the writing is and has been so far in just the couple of pages that we've talked about, I dare say that this would be a lesser thing if it wasn't drawn by, by uh, uh, Brent Anderson. You know, this is, he's got this sort of scratchy style that I usually don't like very much, but here, or at least in this sort of sequence here, man, it really fucking works. You know, this is incredibly well done. <clears throat> anyway, so, I mean, I should, I could probably gush over this stuff all day long, but, you know, I need to need to, you know, get to it. So next page, we see this kind of glory shot of, you know, at the bottom of the page, we see this sort of glory shot of the Samaritan swooping out of his apartment and then flying through 
Astro City. And this is really the first time that we get a, a good look at Astro City. And at a glance, we can see it's kind of Art Deco influenced. It's, you know, it's kind of this sort of vintage throwback sort of period type of look to it. As the story progresses, I mean, it becomes clear this is definitely modern day. But <clears throat> the architecture predominantly used in Astro City, it's very, it's not exclusively deco, but it's very deco-y, you know? And again, I mean, to me, this sort of speaks to the idea of metropolis, or at least a metropolis analog. This is sort of metropolis at its most iconic, you know, and it'll become more iconic as things go on. But I mean, literally right from the start, this is, you know, that's what we're looking at here. And in the kind of in the distance, you know, we, we see a uh, mountain. Remember that that mountain is back there because we're going to be coming back to that mountain. Or at least the mountain is going is, is gonna to come up again in the course of all of this discussion a little bit later in, in the miniseries. But to get into it, we get into the section where Samaritan stops the tsunami in Manila, Philippines. And it's basically just a sort of Superman action sequence that you've probably seen about a thousand times. But what he does, and this, and this superpower that he uses actually gets named later on, but I'm going to leave it kind of nameless for right now. He uses this sort of telekinetic superpower to block the entirety of the tsunami and basically protect Manila from the worst of the damage. Now, let's face it. Basically, a tsunami is hitting an irresistible force. And so there's going to be a shockwave that comes from that. And there will be damage in, in uh, Manila because of that. But let's be realistic you know, there. I think that the residents of Manila would rather repair some broken windows than, uh, I don't know, have to swim for their lives, you know? So there you have it. And the reason I mention this is because, <clears throat> as I've said, you could adequately or accurately view Samaritan as a sort of Superman analog, and I think you've got a leg to stand on there. But this is one of those powers that Superman doesn't, explicitly have and I guess my way of no prizing that apart from the fact that this is Kurt Busiek's story and he can give people whatever superpowers he wants my sort of no prize answer to that is in the I guess the pre-crisis era you know we saw Superman do sort of incredible things you know uh, he would catch airplanes and and, you know, uh, pick up buildings and, and do stuff like that. And these are things that are completely impossible, all right? If you were to actually, if you had the actual, like, physical muscle to lift that much weight, it still wouldn't matter because those things would just fall to pieces in your hands. I mean, they're not created to deal with having the stress, you know, of their entire mass concentrated on just one small section of their surface. I mean, they would they would collapse, right? <clears throat> if you doubt me on that, try balancing a needle perfectly on the, uh, on the ground and then balance yourself using your finger. Balance yourself on your finger on the needle. It's not going to work. The needle is going to shoot right through your finger and it's going to hurt like a son of a bitch 
because your finger wasn't designed to support the entire weight of your body on the edge of a needle, right? So what I've always assumed is that Superman, basically what we need, there are two possible explanations. Either the laws of, of physics operate differently in the DC universe, which is a concept I'm actually kind of a fan of, to tell you the truth, or if they have the exact same rules of physics that we do, Superman must have some kind of a superpower that can, I guess, work around the laws of physics, right? And Superboy, by which I mean the clone who debuted in Reign of the Superman in 1993, he had a power whereby, well, basically, let's just call it what it is. He called it, in every single fucking issue he appeared in, Tactile telekinesis, right? <clears throat> and it's basically a way of controlling huge objects, or for that matter, small objects, with his mind. You know, he can basically extend his physical control over things, his strength over things. He can extend that outside of his body, right? And I think it would be reasonable to assume that consciously or unconsciously, Superman has a very similar type of power. You know, and that's certainly implicit when John Byrne was doing his run on Superman. You know, I think that's very implicit, you know, and here it's actually a little bit more explicit. It's a different power that Samaritan is using, but it's basically the same concept. He can exert his physical strength outside of his body so he can block a tsunami with his strength, but Obviously, it would be impossible for him to block a tsunami with his body, but he can block it with his strength, which he can extend outside of his body. Makes sense? So, arguably, this is something that... This is sort of a, an extrapolation of a, of a superpower that Superman has always had. Kurt Busiek is just, I guess, processing it differently, you know? So, or, you know what? Another way of looking at it is... Yeah, Samaritan is a pastiche of Superman, but nobody said he was going to be an absolutely perfect pastiche. So, anyway, it's just a neat little sequence. I love it. And maybe I'm investing way too much thought into this, but I at least wanted to talk about it. So, anyway, from there, we get to the scene where Asia drops in on on his office. The name of the of the... I don't know if this is a newspaper or a magazine that he works for, but it's a news publication of some kind, and it's called The Current. And the office that he works in is Astro City's Feature Weekly. This is the verification department. And basically, what Asia Martin does is fact-checking. You know, So a story comes in, and he just basically checks all of the factual propositions that are made in the story to ensure accuracy. So kind of an interesting job, really, when you think about it. So, anyway, his his co-workers, they do the sort of quintessential Lois Lane, Jimmy Olsen bit, where <clears throat> uh, one of them, I don't think she actually has a name, I don't think she's actually named in this story. Um, actually, no, I take it back, her name is Karen. But, uh, anyway, um, she says, you know, for someone who enjoys his job so much, you figure just once he'd get here a little early. And she's saying this behind Asia's back, Asia Martin's back. 
And, of course, we readers know that the reason he didn't get there early is because of the fact that he was in, oh, I don't know, Manila, Turkey, Stuttgart, places like that, saving the fucking world. So, anyway. From there, we get a little bit of a glimpse into Asia Martin's sort of day-to-day office routine, where he sets up his zixometer, number one, to do all of his work for him and make phone calls and, and generate reports and do all of that kind of stuff. <clears throat> and number two, he also sets up his equipment. So basically he can keep an ear out for emergencies and then those can be uh, organized by the Zixometer and ranked according to urgency. And then he can make the most efficient use of his time as he swoops around the world saving everything, you know? And when you think about it, I mean that, you know, in the 1930s, and a future issue of Astro City is going to get into this at least somewhat, but back in the 1930s, you know what? Working at a newspaper probably was the most efficient way to find out about emergency situations that are erupting all over the world and then going out to deal with them as your super-powered alter ego, right? In the 1930s, I bet that was probably the most efficient way forward. But that's, <clears throat> that's really not and really hasn't been the most efficient way shit since at least the 70s. I mean, it may even be earlier than that, but definitely since the 70s. You don't necessarily have to work at a newspaper in order to find out about urgent emergency situations, you know? And in today's, you know, social media world, I mean, you really don't need to work at a newspaper. I mean, theoretically, Superman could basically pretend to be a homeless bum most of the time and live on the streets, but then when he gets an alert on his cell phone or something like that, you know, RSS feeds or, for, or from Twitter or just whatever, he can swoop into action, uh, action and never have to deal with this whole balancing act of a dual identity, you know? And of course, from there, you have to think of reasons why Superman would want a dual identity in the first place. And, you know, different writers have different takes on that, but... Superman must spend part of his time as Clark Kent. So in the 1930s, like I say, it was easy to think of reasons why he needed to do that. But as time goes on, you need to think of other reasons for him to do that. So anyway, it's this is, I guess, as good a way of anything, uh, you know, why, why it is that, you know, a Superman type would work at a news agency on the one hand and maintain a, a secret identity on the one hand, but on the other hand, still be able to do everything that needs doing. And honestly, it's really in, it's really on this page, this montage uh, page where we first see Asia Martin setting up his office and then, you know, we see him swooping into action and, you know, stopping runaway buses and, you know, stuff like that. We start getting an idea of, the fact that this is a little bit more of a pre-crisis-y type of universe where supervillains might use giant robots to rob banks or 
um, let me think, or maybe there's a, a genetic engineering accident that happens near an airport that only Samaritan can deal with and, you know, uh, you know, stuff like that, you know, and I don't know why, but this just strikes me as a very pre-crisis-y type of universe, you know? Skipping ahead a little bit, though, getting into <clears throat> the Samaritans meeting with the Honor Guard, this is where we see that the Honor Guard is a little bit of a pastiche of, of, the, uh, of the Justice League. It's not exactly perfect. I mean, some of these characters are not in, you know, instantly recognizable as a DC archetype per se, but they are recognizably generic enough to be, you know, superheroes. You understand more or less who they are and what they do just at a glance, or at least you get enough of who they are and what they do at a glance. You don't necessarily need to know copious amounts of their history and character in order to, to get the idea, you know? This is very much a get-the-idea type of, you know, sequence here where we find out more about the Samaritan's world and the other characters, you know, at some point, maybe they'll have their day in the sun, maybe they won't, but for right now, this is basically the Samaritan's story, and that's what matters. So, anyway, and from there, they have their, they have their meeting where they basically just kind of talk shop for a while, and compare notes on what's going on and, you know, the villains that are known to be in custody, the villains that are known to be at large and all that stuff. And, you know, it's basically, if you think about it, I mean, there's a very strong probability that your average Justice League meeting could actually be kind of boring, you know? And we get the flavor of that here, but it's not overdone, I guess is what I'm saying. And then from there... You know, the, the the honor guardians, for lack of a better word, basically work on their equipment and basically just try to maintain their operation, I guess is the way to put it. So, and again, I'm not aware of, off the top of my head, I honestly cannot remember having ever read a scene like this in a, in a Justice League comic. But there's still the authenticity of it that even if a scene like this has never appeared in a Justice League comic, scenes like this have, you know? If not this exact thing, something similar to this. And, I don't know, it it just seems, on the one hand, this is definitely a very fictional type of, type of universe, you know? Where costumed superheroes and costumed supervillains are just weird fucked up science fantasy bullshit is just part of day-to-day -day life it's still it has it's not realistic but it is there is an often an authenticity to it put it that way now excuse me while i get a sip off of my coke here All right, so from there, the Honor Guard swoop into action, and they foil a bank robbery. And again, this is the kind of thing that I could, I could totally picture the Justice League doing, where they all just happen to be hanging out on the Justice League satellite or what have you. And they really don't have too much else to do at that moment, so 
an alert notification comes through, hey, there's a bank robbery in progress. And what we're dealing with here is basic, we are dealing with fundamentally human perps. And when you think about it, any single member of the Justice League could take them down. But they all swoop into action anyway, just as much as anything, because, you know, they don't really have too much else to do at that moment. But also, I think there's a little bit of psychological warfare going on there to where they would want even standard issue human criminals to know that at any given moment, they may have to contend with the entire fucking Justice League of America. So maybe that by itself, the fact that they're willing to show this kind of force against, let's face it, a group of crooks that are just fundamentally no match for them, maybe that's a deterrent for other people trying something similar, you know? And, I mean, basically, their little showdown with the Menagerie gang, it's over almost even before it really starts, you know? And, like I say, <clears throat> they didn't necessarily need to scramble the entire fucking honor guard in order to make it happen. But, nevertheless, it's good PR. And, like I say, I think there's also a sort of a psychological element to this where just by sending out this kind of manpower, they could actually be preventing other crimes because of the fact that the would-be perp just knows he's he just does not want to have to deal with possibly the entire honor guard if things go go south during his attempted robbery. So there is that to think about. Anyway, from there we get we get back to Asia Martin's office where he makes a handoff of his report to his boss and he's just he he gets new uh he gets a new assignment and it involves it's basically called our brightest stars and the subline of it is Astro City's 25 loveliest luminaries and basically these are supermodel types and actresses and whatnot that on the one hand would probably love to go on a date with the Samaritan on the one hand. But on the other hand, Asia Martin knows that he just, he cannot commit to even having coffee with somebody like this for as fun as it would be. You know, um, he's basically 100% committed to his mission, you know, and... Actually, he's just got this incredible internal monologue here. It says, It's our annual feature on the 25 most beautiful women in Astro City. I hate this piece. I hate the photos especially. The eyes, the lustrous hair, the perfect skin, the satins and velvets, reminding me, mocking me with what I'm giving up. But when could I spare the time for friends to relax for a life. These women, I have their addresses, phone numbers, their work schedules, and who among them wouldn't want to meet Samaritan? Who among them? And then his thoughts kind of trail off, and then he gets interrupted by another report from the Zixometer, right? And again, you just get an idea of what he willingly sacrifices in order to to be 
this, you know? And it's just really moving. I mean, he's he's not coming at this from the point of view of some creepy stalker guy when he says that he knows their addresses and phone numbers and all that stuff. He doesn't mean it like that. He means it would be so easy for him to arrange a meeting with any one of these women. And when you think about it, why shouldn't he? You know, why can't he? just allow himself, you know, it doesn't have to be like a lifelong marriage with, you know, kids and a white picket fence and a house in the suburbs and, you know, all that stuff. You just a day off, you know, or not even a day off, maybe just an hour off, you know, just have coffee and just kind of relax. But, you know, he's so committed to his mission and he's got reasons. I mean, don't get me wrong. We'll get into it, you know, a little bit later in the miniseries, but he's got reasons for being almost obsessive about actually I think at this point no it's not almost obsessive it is obsessive this is uh, this is basically his his calling this is what he's realized is his calling and you know being a superhero is what he's here to do and it would be nice if he could make time you know for you know friends family a social life a love life maybe even a family life, but he's here to do so much more, or he can do so much more, you know? And again, we're going to find out why, but I do think it's really telling that, you know, he knows some of the perks that could go along with his job, and he's very well aware that he can indulge them anytime he wants, but his commitment to his mission is absolute. And that's not necessarily the way that I see Superman, but I do think that is a valid interpretation of Superman. You know, you could view that into Superman's character. And what I would say is that, you know, I could certainly agree with you, at least, you know, maybe one phase or another of his career. Yeah, he might be that obsessive about it, you know? So I don't think it's invalid. I just think I'm not sure I entirely agree with it. Like this would be his defining trait, but yeah, I can, I can absolutely see where Buziak's coming from on this. And you know, the thing about this sequence that actually really works for me is that it puts a face now to all of the sacrifices that Asia Martin is making in living his life and with such commitment to being Samaritan, you know, and that is just very powerful. It it works for me. And one of these faces that he sees, amid, uh, you know, amongst all of these actresses and models and movie stars and all this stuff, and probably rock stars too, we get a little bit of a glimpse of another superhero, and uh, superheroine. Well, fuck it, superhero. And we'll be coming back to her before too long, so... Anyway, so the Zixometer goes off and Samaritan swoops back into action. We get yet another montage of him doing just these incredible Superman type of types of things up to and including rescuing a cat from a tree and then giving the cat to a girl in pigtails. So I guess there's your Superman the movie reference, Hoss. Slowing down long enough for the little girl to see Samaritan. 
almost costs a man in Boston his life because a building collapses right beside him. And Samaritan barely gets there in time. And again, he he uses this sort of energy extension power that he hasn't really named yet. He uses that to prop up the building and give it structural support while it gets evacuated. But while it's being evacuated, he's basically stuck there, you know? And there's a moment, actually, where he has a little bit of internal monologue. And... Let's see. Yeah, he says, I can't save everybody. People die, even while I'm saving lives here, but I can still do what I can. Can't I? And, golly, <laughs> that's just powerful writing. And then from there, I mean, his gaze kind of shifts upward, and he sees a pigeon flying around, and it's the it's basically flapping its wings, and it's flying around, and this sort of still image, it sort of looks like the... It sort of looks like the, the symbol on Samaritan's chest, where it's not quite a star because the bottom part of it isn't really... Or the bottom points of the stars, or of the star, it's like they're cut off. And so it's almost like a bird shape, right? And that's a very similar shape that the pigeon is making at the bottom of this page where Samaritan is propping up the building. And it's kind of funny that on some level he's got to envy the bird because the bird can just fly around and it doesn't have responsibilities. It can just enjoy being able to fly. The pigeon is as free as a bird. But Samaritan isn't. He's captive to an ideal. Uh, he's committed himself to a mission. And nothing can stand in the way of that. And on the one hand, you get the idea that he doesn't really regret his decision. But on the other hand, he is very keenly aware of what he's sacrificed. So, I don't know. It's this perfect balance of Superman being absolutely committed to his mission, on the one hand. But on the other hand, being a, perhaps a little bit wistful about the life that he's willingly giving up in order to serve a higher, greater, and more noble good. And it's not angsty as such, and it's not mopey, it's not whiny. It's basic, there's a resignation to this. I, I don't know, it's hard to describe, I mean, it's hard to put it into words, but, you know, there's a way to do this well with Superman or with a Superman figure, you can fall flat on your fucking face if you don't tread that line just perfectly. But if you do, you're basically putting Superman in a position where he's absolutely relatable on the one hand, but he's still absolutely Superman on the other, you know? And that is just incredibly effective writing. And leave it to Kurt Busiek to get it right. You know, get it perfect. So... Anyway, so from there, you know, the issue starts winding down. Samaritan deposits the, the Firefighters Association award into his sort of secret interdimensional crawl space, 
which I guess as far as, you know, storage units are concerned, this one has the virtue of being impregnable. So there is that to think about. But anyway, it's just, it's a very science fantasy, very pre-crisis-y type of idea. Again, I'm not aware of Superman ever having anything quite like this, you know, an interdimensional uh, storage unit, basically. But it's the kind of thing he could have had, you know? And it's a kind of interesting little way to combine, I guess, the concepts of the Fortress of Solitude with the Phantom Zone, you know? I just like that on a conceptual basis, you know? That that plays for me. That's just really neat. And also while he's in there, you know, you can see it's it's like it just stretches on into infinity, you know? Tons of plaques and trophies and awards and certificates and it just stretches beyond what the human eye can see. You know, this is not the first time he's he's ever been given an award and it's not going to be the last time either, you know? That is how fucking grateful people are to him. That is how much he's helped. That is how big a difference he's made. That is how busy he's been, you know? And it's strange to think, on the one hand, that he's received this many fucking awards, but on the other hand, you know, it does kind of speak to the fact that, you know, he does take pride in what he does, you know? This isn't a curse, you know? He is proud on some level of what he's... Uh, of the service that he's done and of, you know, the things that he's, that he's accomplished for mankind, you know? So again, there's, it's not really so much about ego. He's proud of what he's done. He's not proud of the awards necessarily. He's more proud of what they represent, you know, the ideal that he's striving toward, you know? And that is just fucking powerful. Again, Kurt Busiek gets it perfectly right. You know, I love this. Anyway, from there, Samaritan has his big showdown with the living nightmare. You know, they beat the piss out of each other for a while. And then Superman finds a way to take take the living nightmare out of action, knowing damn good and well that this is just a temporary measure. The living nightmare is going to come back and it's going to have he's basically going to have to do something like this all over again. And he says to himself, in some ways, that's the most frustrating part of the battle, you know? And then he goes on to say, <clears throat> I'd like to take my time heading back, meaning heading back home. I'd like to take my time heading back. I'm bruised, exhausted, and Earth is so lovely by starlight, but there's property damage to deal with, a gas main to repair, wounded to attend to, and more. It's past 1 a.m. by the time I get back to my apartment. I tally up the day. 56 seconds, and that means basically he's had 56 seconds to himself to just relax and kind of veg out. That's how, that's how much personal, private time he's had today. 56 seconds, best day since March. I'm sleeping, or I'm slipping away before my head hits the pillow, and I sleep, and I dream, and I fly. And that is just fucking amazing, dude. That is, that is powerful. I, I just eat this up with a spoon. And, you know, I'm, it's hard to put in, I mean, look, it's probably because I'm such a huge Superman fan that this kind of just pushes, <clears throat> pushes my buttons. 
I'm not saying that, you know, when I say that this is what I want from Superman, I don't mean that necessarily this type of characterization, I, although I do think there's a lot of validity in this characterization. This isn't just, this isn't necessarily my preferred characterization of Superman. But nevertheless, this is what I want from Superman. A guy who who does good specifically because doing good is the right thing to do and he wants to do the right thing. You know, and this isn't necessarily, you know, being a superhero, this isn't necessarily his first choice in terms of, you know, career paths, but nevertheless, he's got these powers and he has therefore a responsibility to to use them to help other people, you know? That's his mission. And I like that sort of that push and pull that honestly I think works most powerfully with Superman. I mean, I'm not going to say that only Superman can do that, but there is this sort of dichotomy of, you know, what you want versus what fate has given you that I like I or at least I think works best, most powerfully, most poetically with Superman, you know? Not saying that other characters can't bring something like that to the table. I just think it's at its purest with Superman. So, and indeed, I think the proof is in the pudding here. It is so well executed with Samaritan, this kind of Superman archetype. It's just incredibly powerful, incredibly well written. And I just love this issue for everything that it says about who this guy is and what he believes. This is just amazing writing. And again, leave it to Kurt Busiek to get it perfect. You know? So, anyway, I think that is pretty much it for me in this segment. Um, This segment's actually gone kind of long, so I'm just going to divide up the rest of Astro City and put that in the rest of... I don't know if all of the rest of Astro City can go in the next segment. I may end up having to have two more segments after this, but fucking bottom line is... That's it for me in this segment. Be right back after these messages. Stay tuned. Hello, friend. This is Christopher Woolnatt with a very important message for you. Beware of monsters. Yes, friend, beware of monsters. International best-selling author Jeremy Robinson, along with BewareOfMonsters.com, feel this message is so important, they have commissioned me to start this podcast to get the word out. Please, beware of monsters. Each week, the Beware of Monsters podcast will talk to experts and authors about the monsters from film, literature, from comic books, video games, from any place we find them lurking. Beware of Monsters. You can find more information by searching Beware of Monsters in iTunes, your podcatcher program, or the RSS feed on BewareOfMonsters.com. This podcast is in its infancy, but you can join us now and watch it grow 
like a mad experiment in a secret lab in an underground bunker somewhere in New England as it gets out of control, consuming all around it in its mad quest to control the world. Friend, beware of monsters. Each week, presented by Jeremy Robinson and BewareOfMonsters.com. I'm back now and continuing my little discussion about the Astro City miniseries from 1995. And this should just about bring us to issue number two. And I gotta tell you, you know, this this entire miniseries actually is just a, a ton of fun. But as to this specific issue, well, maybe I should just, uh, I should come to it all in sequence, but the title of this uh, of this issue uh, of this story is The Scoop. Story summary is as follows. Back in 1959, a rookie newspaper reporter stumbles onto a cadre of evil monks as they descend into an empty subway station and there they sacrifice a shark in some kind of weird fucked up ritual. In so doing, the evil monks succeed in summoning some kind of a demonic force from another dimension over into this plane of existence. The reporter then witnesses the demon transform the evil monks into shark monsters. However, they get interrupted by, a, by Silver Agent and the Golden Age era of the Honor Guard, the members of which kick the shit out of the shark monsters. They eventually smash the altar which gave the demon a tether into this plane of existence and in the bargain, the members of the honor guard get sucked into the, the portal as well. The sacrificial shark that began this ritual collapses onto the tracks in the subway station, onto the, uh, onto the tracks in the subway and almost gets hit by a passing train. Elliot, the newspaper reporter in question, rushes back to his office and writes the story, but his editor insists that he rewrite and rewrite the story. The point is to stick with the facts that he can prove. If it cannot be proven, it cannot go into the story, period. As a result, the final story is not about how the honor guard saved the world from an existential demonic threat brought about by a group of crazed pagan monks. Nope. Instead, the story relates to a train being briefly delayed by a shark randomly appearing on the subway tracks. The end. So, <laughs> what did I think? Well, on the one hand, it needs to be said that yes, I love this miniseries. This is great stuff. Can't get enough of it. On the one hand. On the other hand, though, this miniseries is otherwise really strong, but I think this issue is maybe the weakest of all the stories that we have to work with. And <clears throat> what I can say for it, though, is issue number one, and indeed 
several other issues in this miniseries are written from the point of view of one of the superhero characters or perhaps one of the villains or something like that. This issue is written from the point of view of a complete civilian. And so right there, it's a little bit of, uh, it's a little bit unique in terms of the, the points of view being represented in this story. So that's kind of interesting, but overall, I don't know. It's just, this story is kind of funny and it does a lot to shade in, I guess, uh, a lot of universe building with, I guess, the Astro City universe and the way that it works and everything. And so, you know, that stuff I'm totally on board with. It's just, this story is missing something. I don't know. It's, the words are just, they're not coming to me here, but something is missing from this story. It's like it needs, you've got the story of, you know, the journalists and they're kind of shooting the bull talking about uh, Elliot, the editor, the newspaper editor's uh, career and how he got his big break. Or I'm using quotation marks here, big break. And then there's obviously the story itself of the Golden Age era, or maybe Silver Age era, depending on how you look at it, Honor Guard, duking it out with pagan monsters and subways and stuff like that but it just seems like there's something else that needs to be here that just isn't but what we do get is actually a lot of fun and like i say it does a lot to sort of shade in the 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 nature of the universe that we're working with here you know it's just it's a lot of fun and i don't know why but the only, for some reason, this story to me, it just seems like it would work better if it was, instead of being vaguely Silver Agey, it was rather specifically more Golden Agey. You know, if this took place in like 1939, 1940, 41, around there, <clears throat> basically pre World War II, I don't know why, but this, I, I just believe for some reason that I can't even really quantify that it would be somehow more interesting if it took place at that time. Now, it takes place in 1959, which is an oddly specific year, so something tells me there's a point in the story being set during that time uh, as opposed to an earlier one. And so, you know, I, basically what I'm saying is I'm not I don't want it to sound like I'm I'm second-guessing, you know, Kurt Busiek and, you know, the way that he chose to, to do this story, you know? So, just want to be clear on that. It's just... I don't know. It, it's... It, to me, like I say, there's the timing of the story and, I guess, the elements that make up the story. It's just... it. I can't escape the sensation that there's something missing here that needs to be here, you know? But one of the things that <clears throat> that really does work for me about this story is Silver Agent is a kind of, sort of, uh, Captain America archetype in some ways. And that plays for me. You know, I mean, Samaritan was undeniably a, a, a kind of a Superman analog. And Silver Agent is a Captain America analog. And it kind of relates back to my point that the Astro City universe takes a lot of influence. In fact, I dare say the majority of its influence from the DC universe 
but it's not exclusively DC. You get a couple of elements of the Marvel Universe as well. And I don't know why, but this is just a ton of fun. And I've only read just a couple of issues of the ongoing series that, that came out of this miniseries. But something tells me we're going to see Silver Agent again and learn more about his history in due course, you know? So, there you go. Now, overall, there's just there's not a ton of stuff to say about this story other than to say that I, I do really cherish it from the standpoint of universe building and all of that. But, like I say, I, I just can't get away from the sensation that something is missing that really needs to be here. There needs to be some third element here that is just nowhere to be found. But overall, it's a fun little story. I enjoy it. And to be to be very blunt about it, you know, you really can't you, you really can't overlook, I guess, the wit of a, of a story about an existential threat to the universe or at least the world, the planet Earth being reduced and reduced and reduced and reduced and cut down to the bone to such a degree that it's about a fairly forgettable mundane event that it's weird it's not exactly front page material though for some reason i just i i i can't help myself i laugh at that so anyway so i think that's pretty much it for me in this segment what i'm going to do is take another break and i'll be right back to continue my discussion about astro city stay tuned My name is Stella, and I am the host of Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Backroll to Oracle is a podcast dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the mantle of Backroll for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1988. The goal of Backroll to Oracle is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Backroll and continuing through her tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at a vintage issue of Detective Comics or Batman, as well as other books like Justice League and Freedom Fighters, and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I have a revolving series of segments like Babs in the Tube, which highlights appearances of Babs in TV and film, Shipper Spotlight, which looks at a variety of comic and pop culture couples, gives their history, and determines whether they are hot or not, Reading with Stella, which could be described as an audio drama, or just me reading a book that relates to Babs or doesn't, and of course, the mainstay literature recommendation. I have been blessed to interview writers Scott Beatty and Chuck Dixon on their Backroll Year One work, Brian Q. Miller on his Backroll run, Dwayne Swarzynski and Christy Marks on their separate Birds of Prey work, and the creators and actors of the Backroll Spoiled, the web series. I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Find the show online at thebatmanuniverse.net and iTunes, and follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Batgirl to Oracle. Thank you, and fly on, Babs lovers. Oh, 
Okay, I'm back now, and I'm ready to talk about Astro City number three. Basically, like I say, this sort of continues the... The, the universe building that we got in issue number two. But I think it does so in a little bit more of an interesting way, but we can get back to that when we get back to that. For right now, this is Astro City number three, the title of which is A Little Knowledge. And the story summary is as follows. A nobody thug called Andrew Eisenstein accidentally sees Jack in the Box's face. He fantasizes about selling that information to the criminal underworld, but Jack in the Box himself crashes the lowlife bar in which Andrew's hanging out and beats the shit out of everybody. Andrew just barely manages to escape. Later, Andrew's able to discover a name in order to match Jack in the Box's unmasked face. Not long after that, Andrew's working for a local mob crime lord when their operation gets smashed by, you guessed it, Jack in the Box. This sends Andrew on a journey of absolute hysteria. Fearing for his life, Andrew imagines several scenarios he can use to turn this situation to his advantage, but in the end, his terror and paranoia are getting to him. Finally, and desperately, Andrew buys a bus ticket and moves to Anchorage. The end. So, what did I think? Well, again, this story is written from the standpoint of a non-superhero and non-superpowered person. The difference, though, is that this is a crook. This is basically just some two-bit loser who's doing the storytelling here. And instantly, that kind of gives you a little bit more color to work with. You know, the criminal underworld and how, it, and somewhat of how it operates in the Astro City universe. And for that, I think we, you know, we can be grateful. But another just kind of funny thing is I love Jack in the Box. I love the idea of Jack in the Box. You know, this sort of clown superhero who is absolutely serious, takes his work absolutely serious, but uses completely ridiculous methods. He's got a ridiculous costume. He uses ridiculous methods. It's just funny to me, you know? And, you know, he's got this this clown uh, disguise that he uses and, you know, the jack-in-the-box, you know, persona to do his thing. He's got joy buzzers. He's got those, uh, those nose buzzers. He's got streamers to tie people up. He's got stilts to prepare him, uh, propel himself up into the air and, you know, sort of gain air superiority over his adversaries. He's got uh, extendable arms to extend his reach so that he can smash somebody in, uh, in the head from a lot further away. And <clears throat> it's basically all of these just ridiculous, idiotic tropes of, of clowns that he's found a way to, repon uh, to weaponize and use in his war against crime. And it's it should be ridiculous, okay? I should be laughing at this. And I am, but I'm not... I guess it's more that I'm laughing with it. I'm not laughing at it, you know? So, it's it's just... It's funny to me, you know? So, I mean, you could see a guy like this using a whoopee cushion as like some kind of an... Uh, as sort of a, like a stun... I guess, like a stun grenade or something like that. It's just... <laughs> it's just fucking funny. I love this. 
you know. And in the process, one of the things that comes out in this story is Jack in the Box, the, at least the one that we see in the story, is presumably the second person who calls himself Jack in the Box. There was somebody else called Jack in the Box, and at least in this issue, we don't really find out, you know, what the story with that is, because again, this 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 issue was written entirely from Andrew's point of view as opposed to Jack in the Box's point of view. In a weird kind of way, Jack in the Box is sort of the antagonist of this story, while Andrew is the protagonist. So, anyway. <clears throat> The thing is, I mean, I knew guys, or let me rephrase that, I knew a guy who was kind of like Andrew, not so much that he was a criminal, although maybe, but back when I was in junior high, I just knew this kind of scumbag who was convinced he had, you know, the answers to everything, and that's kind of where Andrew is coming from. I mean, this entire story is predicated on the idea that Andrew isn't as smart or as clever as he thinks he is, but nevertheless, he he kind of thinks of himself as he's the guy that keeps his eyes open. He's always got an, an ear to the ground. He's got the inside track on everything, you know? And his own presumptions and high opinions of himself is actually his undoing in this story, oddly enough. You know, uh, if basically if he, if he wasn't so convinced of his own bullshit, he would have known that Jack in the Box never had any fucking idea who Andrew was at the very most, Andrew was just another face in the crowd to him. He was never on Andrew's trail. And basically, Andrew moved to Anchorage for no good reason, you know? But because of the fact that he's convinced that he knows everything, he's got all the answers, and he's just Mr. Smart Guy, that's ultimately his, un his own undoing. And... I, like I said, I just knew kind of disreputable know-it-alls like this, or a disreputable know-it-all like this back when I was in junior high. And I don't know if he grew up, like I say, I don't know if he grew up to be a crook, but that's just who I think of whenever I read this story. This guy who's just so full of shit. You know, I mean, if he has a way to steal $5 from you, 10 to 1, he'll probably do it. If he thinks he won't get caught. But he's not as smart or as creative as he thinks he is, you know? And I don't know why, but it's just that aspect of the story, which is really the linchpin of this issue, that's what ties everything together for me, and that's one of the reasons why I find this story so easy to, to believe in. And like I say, how can you not laugh? Again, not laugh at, but laugh with Jack in the Box. I mean, this this is just such a ludicrous concept. It, it, it can't help but work. You know, you could never do a concept like this realistically but this sort of zany over-the-top science fantasy universe that is the astro city universe yeah this is gonna this is gonna play like gangbusters so i love it just fucking love it it's great anyway so i think that's pretty much it for me in this segment so another break another issue of astro city when i come back stay tuned
Star Trek. Comic books. Mythology. Video games. Toys. Star Wars. Just about any geeky topic you can think of could be covered on the Hammer Podcast, presented by Two True Freaks. Come join me, Gene Hendricks, for whatever my disjointed mental processes can come up with, and be careful, or you might just learn something before we're done. The Hammer Podcast is available monthly, both on its own iTunes feed and at twotruefreaks.com. Okay, I'm back now and ready to talk about Astro City number four, title of which is Safeguards, and story summary is as follows. Each morning, Marta commutes from Shadow Hill to work as a junior clerk in the accounting department at the law firm of Grant, Miller, Conroy, McConnell, and Ingersoll, right in the heart of uh, Benderbeck Plaza. One day, one of Marta's co-workers offers her a place in her apartment in downtown Astro City, which would take Marta out of Shadow Hill. Marta has to choose between what she considers to be a traditional life in Shadow Hill versus a new life in downtown Astro City. Needless to say, her family isn't supportive at all. They want her to get a job in Shadow Hill at Vassalou's butcher shop and stick with her family and her childhood home. Marta's decision is made more complicated when Bender... I don't know why this is so hard for me to say. Bender Beck Plaza gets attacked by Demolisha and the Unholy Alliance, which is to say an unruly gang of supervillains who like tearing a bunch of shit up. The first family arrives and kicks the shit out of the Unholy Alliance, but the damage is done, and Bender Beck Plaza is gonna have to be rebuilt. Marta ultimately decides fuck it, quits her job at the law firm, and goes to work as a bookkeeper for Vassalou's butcher shop in Shadow Hill. The end. So, what do I think? Well, I gotta tell you, again, we get a shit ton more universe building here, where Shadow Hill is, in in its own kind of way, it's almost like its own district in Astro City, and it's governed by very different rules and I guess what I mean by that is that if Astro City the the city called Astro City if that's an analog for Metropolis then I think you could fairly well say that Shadow Hill is a suburb that is basically an analog of Sunnydale from Buffy the Vampire Slayer It's not exactly perfect because Sunnydale is a very different type of city than is Shadow Hill, but basically what I'm saying is if it came out in some future issue that Shadow Hill is sitting on a a hell mouth, yeah, that would be pretty easy to believe, actually. So, it's, for some reason, that fucking works for me. You know, it's almost like this, like Shadow Hill is 
it's like it's a relic from a different time and it's it just doesn't fucking belong here it even looks different you know astro city is very uh kind of futuristic deco kind of art deco type of a look whereas shadow hill is more gothic you know and it's just you, you see a little bit more things like you know cathedrals and kind of gothic-y looking spires and you know stuff like that and it's it, it i mean it's a place that looks different and subconsciously you know that this place works differently as well and what i mean is that the key difference between shadow hill and astro city apart from their look <clears throat> is that astro city is the place where somebody can decide to rob a bank in the middle of downtown astro city and they'll be uh they'll drive around through the building in a giant fucking purple tank designed by kirby machines or something like that and something like that is just part of day-to-day -day existence in in astro city you know the city astro city right whereas in shadow hill you're not likely to see that so much but you might find that i don't know there's that maybe the zombies come out at night or, or or there are vampire that you know there's a vampire on the loose or something like that you know it has different threats and this is the point shadow hill faces different threats and these are more paranormal in origin as opposed to science or superhuman or what have you you know and I kind of like the idea, since, you know, let's face it, Astro City is basically an analog of a sort for Metropolis. I kind of like the idea of Metropolis having like a paranormal district where shit like this is, it's like, on the one hand, it's a day-to-day -day reality <clears throat> in this district, but it's also confined to this district for some fucked up reason. You know, Shadow Hill is the only thing that's affected by all of this paranormal bullshit. And so as a result, you know, the people there just kind of fucking roll with it, you know? And you get the idea as you read this story that a lot of residents of Shadow Hill are kind of Eastern European immigrants, and they've just got this weird fucked up ability to roll with this, you know, just this weird fucked up distorted reality that they live in. And for some reason, they can just, it's, they can roll with it. It would be living in, in Astro City with all of its cadre of supervillains that are always on the loose, and you never know when pandemonium is going to break out. And the same is kind of true in reverse, where the, the residents of Astro City really wouldn't be able to make it in Shadow Hill simply because of the fact that Shadow Hill, you never know what may be lurking in the shadows to devour you at any given point, you know? And one of the things that kind of comes out in this story, especially near the end, is that in a weird kind of way, the monsters and the ghouls and stuff of Shadow Hill are, in, a, in, in their own sort of way, they're actually protectors of Shadow Hill, depending on how you look at it, in that they not only keep the law-abiding citizens of Astro City out, but there's a spillover effect to that where they also keep out Astro City's criminals. And that's worth something, you know? And so the point of this story is to say that really when you think about it, 
There's not that big a difference, after all, between Shadow Hill and Astro City. They both face weird, fucked up threats. They simply have different ways of dealing with those things. But they both have threats that they deal with, and they both have tools for fighting back and protecting themselves. It's really, at that point, kind of incidental what the threat they face is. And that works for me, you know? And like, and again, it kind of works for me that there's a supernatural district of Metropolis where, yeah, you can find stuff like uh, information about magical spells and, you know, uh, magical weapons and, and, and stuff like that for sort of more paranormal types of warfare. That fucking plays for me. I dig that, you know? So... Once again, I mean, this is Kurt Busiek. He's really got his thinking cap on, and that works for me. Another thing, <clears throat> just to kind of move on to other stuff, this is another story taken, you know, written from the, from the point of view of somebody who's a civilian in this universe. And, you know, this, I think, is a little bit stronger. This story is a lot stronger than issue number two which was also written from the point of view of a civilian, but it just lacks a certain something that I can't put my finger on. That is not lacking here. And, you know, it's easy to become invested in Marta's world and ultimately her decision to stay in Shadow Hill as opposed to move to Astro City properly, you know? So, very well-written character there. So, that's that stuff. Now, I mentioned in the second issue that Silver Agent is sort of a... He's, he's sort of an analog of Captain America. Well, we see the first family in, in this issue, and it becomes pretty clear right away that they're sort of an analog of the Fantastic Four. Now, they're more than four, which I think is why they don't actually use the word four in their name, but they, they basically hit the same type of high points as the Fantastic Four. In fact, you might also... You, you might also think of them as being a little bit of a riff on the challengers of the unknown which is a dc property but to me the fantastic four is just the the clearer influence here you know so i really i i i just i dig that approach but it needs to be said there are more than four in fact i think there are six of them so anyway i just i like that that works for me it's you know i could actually stand to read a a first family miniseries all by itself, but that would kind of violate the the implied stated stated you know purpose and reason for being for Astro City as a concept. So, because of the fact that it's supposed to be a a an anthology title as opposed to a title that focuses only on just one character or a group of characters or what have you. So, anyway. All in all, tons of fun. Love this issue. Love this fucking miniseries, but I really love this miniseries. It's tons of fun, and I think you'd all enjoy it. So I think that's pretty much it for me in this segment. Time for another break, and then I'll come back to talk about another issue. Please stand by. Futuristic drawings saying what the future is going to be. 
I only hope that we never lose sight of one thing. Gleaming buildings, fast monorails. This is the future. That was all started by a monster. Twice the size of Manhattan. We want you to share with us our latest and greatest dream. Walt Disney World. Better than any other urban environment in America. Two True Freaks proudly presents... We hope that it will be unlike anything else on this earth. Golf courses, campgrounds, stores, hotels. Earning My Ears. A once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for everyone who participates. We're ready to go right now. Earning My Ears, a Walt Disney World-centric podcast, is available monthly at twotruefreaks.com. Okay, I'm back now and ready to talk about Astro City number five, title of which is Reconnaissance. Story summary is as follows. An alien ship shapeshifter has secretly infiltrated Astro City while the Honor Guard's alien detection equipment was on the fritz back in the first issue. The alien assumes the identity of Mr. Bridwell, a cranky recluse in an apartment building. His task is performing reconnaissance so that his Anelsian comrades will understand the resistance they can expect if they decide to pr proceed with the invasion of the planet Earth. Through a bizarre twist of fate, the apartment catches fire, which allows Bridwell to secretly attach a tracking device to Cracker Jack's belt. Incidentally, this moment is where Cracker Jack unintentionally tips his hand and gives away that his secret identity is Eugene another resident of the building, although that is later shown to be a little bit of a red herring, because Eugene is just one of many secret identities that the Cracker Jack maintains. In any case, Bridwell determines to make a final decision as to the Anelsian invasion based on Cracker Jack's behavior. Cracker Jack is a showboating glory hound who takes credit for other people's work, blames others for his problems, and basically behaves like a total ass nugget. And yet, Bridwell just can't help admiring Cracker Jack's determination and legitimate talents. In the end, Bridwell finds himself leaning toward not launching the invasion. His mind changes, however, when a group of twittering old ladies in the building soak up the glory and attention of the TV news cameras, saying that they always suspected that Eugene was secretly Cracker Jack, even though they never suspected any such thing, and in fact made a point of always making fun of Eugene behind his back. So pissed off that he can't even see straight, Bridwell storms back into the burned-out husk of the apartment building, reaches what's left of his room, finds his transmitter, and launches a message to the Anelsians. The invasion has been greenlit. The end. So, what did I think? Well, this is another story where the point of view shifts again. This time, back to, let's face it, this is an out-and-out -out villain, you know? Not a superhero, not a civilian, not, you know, some two-bit crook or something like that. But at this point, we're talking like full fucking villain, you know? This is an alien infiltrator who 
is basically here to case the place. You know, find out how easy it's going to be for his people to launch an invasion of the planet Earth. And it's, it's kind of funny to me that of all characters that he bases his decision on, the fate of all of mankind could very well depend upon how well Cracker Jack does his job, you know? If it was any other superhero, mankind would probably have a chance, but no, it's Cracker Jack. But one of the things that comes out in the story is that, yeah, Cracker Jack is a self-absorbed, vain douchebag, really, but he's still good at what he does. He's not perfect, but he is good at what he does. And it's easy to lose sight of that <clears throat> because of the fact that he's a little bit of a Booster Gold-style showboating glory hound. You know? But he really is good at what he does, you know? And he's not as funny as he thinks he is. He's not as clever as he thinks he is. He's not as badass as he thinks he is. But he's still effective as a crime fighter. And... You could very well argue that he's doing this for all the wrong reasons, but you can't really argue that he doesn't have talent for doing this. And as a result, you know, what you find is a character who's actually really sympathetic. You know, no, he's not perfect, <clears throat> but he's doing the best that he can for the most part. And there is a degree to which, you know, his heart really is in the right place, you know? And it just stands to reason that in a world as diverse as Astro City, you would have the showboating careerist showing up and, you know, crowding the action for everybody else. He's not respected by any of his peers. They all hold him in absolute fucking moral contempt. You know, he's doing this, they think, for all the wrong reasons. And he's basically... Probably nobody's favorite superhero in the entire world. But again, you can't argue that the guy isn't good at what he does because he is, you know. So overall, that just that really works for me. And I could see a character like that who's kind of a kind of a, a jerk in some ways, but nevertheless good at what he does. I could see somebody like that, you know, his earnestness actually winning over somebody like Bridwell, you know? And ultimately, what sets him over the deep end is a little bit of a cultural blind spot of his own. Uh, the Anelsian society is apparently rather matriarchal in structure, and so men tend to hold women in extremely high esteem. Women are the leaders of society and whatnot. And it basically functions along a different, para a, a different paradigm than does our society. And these women are nowhere near the Anelsian standard that, that Bridwell is accustomed to. And in their own kind of way, they're actually no better than Cracker Jack. You know, they're, they're kind of attention hogs themselves. The minute news cameras show up and it may, it's possible that Cracker Jack unwittingly re revealed his secret identity to the world. It's their great pleasure to, to go on TV and hog all the attention and say, oh, well, of course, I knew this all along. And and no, they never suspected a fucking thing. That's made crystal clear in, in, you know earlier in the story. These are a bunch of fucking gossip mongers. And, you know, this is... Ba they're basically the stereotypical 
knitting circle of old ladies that I don't think anybody finds endearing. And certainly Bridwell doesn't. And because of the fact that they're so far away from the feminine ideal, as represented in Bridwell's mind by the Anelsians, that he just says, you know what, fuck it, these people aren't worth the time of uh, further study. We're going to fucking wipe them all out. Invasion's on. Let's go, guys. Let's let's wipe these fuckers out. <clears throat> and I find that, like I say, just very persuasive. You know, that's very believable to me. So, anyway, like I say, fun story. Really dig it. Lots of fun. And that, I think, is pretty much it for this issue. So be right back after these messages. traveled far. One journey has ended. A new journey is about to begin. Hey everybody, Magnus here. I do a podcast called Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. What I do is spend six episodes talking about comics, movies, and TV shows, but all that stuff gets put on hold every eighth episode so that I can talk about small things. Smallville's the most underrated live-action adaptation of Superman in all of history. Smallville's my favorite version of Superman apart from the comics, and so every eighth episode, I put Smallville under a microscope. Listeners all around the world have been shocked to discover just how awesome Smallville truly is and just how well it holds up to critical scrutiny. I've recently finished what most people regard as Smallville's first run, with the conclusion of the mighty third season of the show. But, as awesome as Smallville may have been up to this point, the best is still to come. And I want you along for the ride. This is Magnus Talks About Smallville, an eighth episode feature of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. Now with fewer cigarette breaks. So, check out Magnus Talks About Smallville. Every eighth Tuesday, for all the Smallville small talk you could ever hope to shake a stick at. Magnus talks about Smallville every 8th Tuesday only at twotruefreaks.com. Okay, I'm back now and ready to talk about Astro City number six, the very last issue of this miniseries, in fact. The title is Dinner at Eight, and story summary is as follows. Samaritan and Winged Victory go out on a date. It's supposed to be a chance for them to have a night off while the members of the Honor Guard handle all the superhero business that needs handling, but Samaritan and Winged Victory end up discussing business quite a bit. Samaritan reveals his origin story and explains how he came to the present from the future in order to prevent the Challenger space shuttle disaster from 1986 
as that was the moment that doomed the human race. In Samaritan's future time, that is. Originally, he wasn't he wasn't sure if that was enough to save the world, but he one time did have a occasion to return to his own time, and he discovered that it had changed, and he and his family no longer existed there, nor did anybody else from his family. Samaritan and Winged Victory eventually get into a debate about the difference between their respective methods. Samaritan rescues whoever needs his help the most, while Winged Victory prefers to rescue women rather than men. Samaritan initially resents that, but Winged Victory points out that they both prioritize who they rescue. Samaritan prioritizes based upon urgency and peril, while Winged Victory prioritizes based upon sex. Winged Victory says both of their approaches are valid. But the debate goes on and eventually she gets pissed off about the differences with Samaritan and storms out of the restaurant, but Samaritan catches up with her and they come to an understanding, which they seal with a kiss. After that, their date's over and they get back to work. The end. So, what did I think? Well, let me just say that if Samaritan is kind of an analog for Superman, undeniably, you could view Winged Victory as a little bit of an analog of Wonder Woman with maybe a little bit of Hawkwoman thrown in. But... Honestly, I'm at a loss to think of a feminist point of view in the DC or Marvel universes that would have influenced Kurt Busiek. So I'm going to go out on a limb based on absolutely nothing you understand. I'm going to suggest to you that the, the primary influences for Winged Victory, like I say, are Wonder Woman, Hawkwoman, and a little bit of Kurt Busiek's own ideas and and views about what could about what winged victory could be, you know. So I don't. Th- what I'm saying is I don't think there's any single character we should we we should look for and say, yep, that's who winged victory represents. But one of the things about winged victory that kind of works for me is the fact that yeah, she does big, I guess almost operatic stuff like superhero rescues and whatnot. And that stuff is fine, you know, but that's not the totality of her mission. You know, most people in her line of work would probably say, you know what, that's enough. That's where I draw the line. That's how I help society. And then they'd leave it at that. Winged Victory, though, goes a few steps above and beyond that. She runs, I can't really say women's shelters because that's not really what they are. They're more like education centers where, yes, women are protected if, you know, if they need it. But more than anything, they're, I guess, enabled or enfranchised so that they can ultimately learn how to take care of themselves. And yes, on the one hand, that does include stuff like self-defense. Can't overlook that. But there's a, a bigger idea of self-sufficiency that these schools and these learning centers are supposed to impart. And that is actually what Winged Victory is is really more proud of in terms of her accomplishments. She loves the superhero gig. She won't leave it. But 
her view is that she contributes to society in a greater way by running these these for lack of a better word women's shelters but there's so much more than that but i shall call them women's shelters and to be honest with you it's kind of hard to argue with with that you know and the other thing is you know winged victory wants to be wants her accomplishments to be seen as her accomplishments and that's why she's refused membership with superhero groups like the honor guard you know because the minute she incorporates herself into a greater whole her actions are now being considered through and within the context of the honor guard and that's not what she wants she wants all of her victories to be seen as victories for women as opposed to be as opposed to being seen as victories for mankind, you know? And that pretty much leads into her rather controversial point of view about placing gender, placing sex as the defining criterion for who she rescues at any given moment. All other things being equal, if a man is about to be run over by a bus and a woman is about to be run over by a bus and she's only got time to save one of them, Winged Victory is going to save the woman strictly because of sex and no other reason, you know? And I got to tell you, even I find that a little bit shocking. Now, to be fair, that is of a piece with her feminism. But, you know, I guess from a strictly pragmatic standpoint you can only save one of them so who's it gonna be so you know i don't know i mean you have to use something to determine that i guess or just a snap judgment or something like that but she's already made up her mind that no women get preferential treatment you know now people can agree with that or they can disagree with that that is nevertheless the character and to be honest with you I think Samaritan kind of has the more egalitarian, equal opportunity, for lack of a better word, approach to superheroics, the, the more purely non-controversial, I guess, approach to, to the superhero gig. And so not everybody needs to necessarily be quite so accessible. You know, it's okay for Winged Victory to have her own point of view. Whether you agree with it or disagree with it, A, it's kind of unique in comics as far as I know, and B, it does kind of flesh out her character, that extra little bit, you know, it goes that extra mile to, I don't know, just explain who this character is and what she's all about, you know? And I just, I really dig that approach. You know, I also kind of like the idea of the honor guard basically pressuring Samaritan into taking a night off. You know, dude, you need it. And if you've and if you remember from issue number one, yeah, fucker does need a night off. There's no question about that. You know? And this does somewhat get into the idea of, you know, why Superman and Wonder Woman, at least historically, never got together with one another. And this story presents a very a very plausible, very valid, very lucid explanation for why it is that those characters, they might be somewhat attracted to one another, maybe, but neither of them really has time for a relationship, you know? And you can see it in, in you know, in their actions. It's not 
uh, a convenient excuse that the writer is pulling out of his hat that, you know, well, they, they're not going to get together because they just don't have time for it. No, they really don't have time for it. They, uh, you know, Kurt Busiek is not talking out his ass here. Neither of them, they're both feeling, you know, the pressure of wanting to do their job and be somewhere other than where they are. It's not that they're not enjoying their date. They're absolutely enjoying it. They just can't shake the the sensation that there's something else that they need to be doing, you know? And I don't know. I mean, for there's really not a better way to phrase it, so I'll just call them workaholics. But for workaholic types like these, yeah, that's I find that very persuasive. So that, I think, is pretty much it for... The Astro City miniseries. Now, like I say, there's an ast- there's a ton of Astro City ongoing comics out of there, but the what followed this miniseries was actually an ongoing series, and at some point or another, I'm going to come back to Astro City, and I'm going to talk about uh, the ongoing series and all of that. I don't know when, but hopefully I've proven by now that I am capable of coming back to this stuff and revisiting ideas when I promise that I will. May not be the most timely thing in the world, but sooner or later, I'm going to come back to this and we're going to talk about some more Astro City comics. Because, guys, I have to say it, this is what I want from Marvel and DC Comics right now. You know, Astro City is who I want these characters to be. Astro City is the type of world that I want these characters to exist in, you know. Astro City is... This is what I want from superhero comics right now, you know? And it's just such a breath of fresh air to read this and just enjoy these stories, you know? It's just, you know, it's tons of fun. I love it. And, you know, I'm going to peel back the curtain here a little bit and say, I actually, my original idea for this episode was to send a message to Kurt uh, Kurt Busiek and just let him know, dude, I'm going to be talking about this miniseries, so if you'd like to join in and talk about it with me, feel free. And his reply to that was a, you know, it was very polite, don't get me wrong, but it was a very emphatic, you know, thanks but no thanks. And his reason for that is because he just doesn't really like podcasting as a format, and so because of that, he didn't want to participate. And that's at least what he told me. And I'm not second-guessing that or anything like that. I just want you guys to know that if you enjoyed this episode, it could have been, I think, maybe better had had Kurt decided that he wanted to do it. I'm not criticizing him. I'm just saying that, you know, this episode could have been something else, you know, but it wasn't. If you hated this episode, well, again, it could have been something else. But, you know, Kurt Buziak, you know, he, for whatever reason, decided... He didn't want to participate, and again, that's not criticizing him or anything like that. He's obviously free to make up his own mind and can do what he wants, but I'm just saying that, you know, he was invited to participate, and I think it would have been a great conversation, you know, a great opportunity to have him on this show. So, anyway, like I say, I'm going to be talking more about Astro City at some point in the future. I don't know when, uh, but I'm going to come back, and we're going to pick up the discussion with the ongoing series that spun out of this mini-series. So that, I think, is pretty much it uh, for me this week. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week.
Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at Trentus Magnus at gmail.com Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday and that's a promise Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows That's right Simply click the PayPal link Donate any amount at all Tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there's no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play, Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demanzacor of Milan, Italy. <laughs>